Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the First Word Podcast. I'm Alex and I'm here with Mike Eisenberg. And today we are recording a special episode doing both a little bit of a Sundance recap and uh, more importantly a Black Mirror discussion about the latest season that everyone is talking about. Just a quick note regarding recording. Mike lives in Chicago and there may or may not be a train noise you hear in the background. Uh, there there right, may be. We're, we're right next to a train and we just wanted to acknowledge this up front. Uh, but if you hear something, that's what's going on and we do our best to minimize it. But that's all. I hope you still enjoy the show. Anyway, the reason why we're saying this is because if for some reason you hear the train noise and you're in your car or you're in your office and you're like, oh my God, is there a train next to me? It, there isn't. It's train next right to now. me. Oh, there it is. There it is. There's people trying to get home. People trying to go party Saturday night. The whole episode of its own. You know, there's it's this humanity behind us. It, it it says we're not in a vacuum. We're in the real world. It's sort of like when you listen to the radio and you hear car honking in a commercial or you hear police sirens in a commercial. And they don't oh, yeah, tell yeah. you that they're doing it. They just do it. And you freak out and you look over your shoulder. Well, that doesn't have to happen because we're telling you. There, now we've made a joke out of it, and it's fine. This is like a five-minute segment explaining the train. I think it's good. It and needs it. to focus on our discussion on Black Mirror and to get in-depth on it, uh, we have a special guest today. Uh, his name is Eric Heiser. He's a screenwriter and filmmaker who lives in Los Angeles. Um, you may know his work most famously for writing the screenplay for Arrival, but he's also the screenwriter for Final Destination 5, The Thing remake, Lights Out, and he also wrote and directed... Hours. We're happy to have him on today because he's one of my favorite sci-fi writers and he knows sci-fi and is geeky about sci-fi as much as Mike and I and we're excited to get in depth on Black Mirror and get into this show because this show is awesome. So thank you for coming on, Eric. Thank you for having me. Uh, I don't know, should we just jump right into Black Mirror and get going on this? Because this is... Well, I think a good, a good like starting block question <laughs> is when were each of us first introduced to Black Mirror? Yeah. I think the amount of time that you've spent with the show has an impact on how you feel about it. Like, I didn't know about the show until season three, or I guess when it came to Netflix last year. Mm -hmm. Being able to wait for a whole year for a new season was that experience that you enjoy when you wait for TV shows. So I kind of feel like it's the first time I ever had that reaction of like waiting for my show to come back, and mm -hmm. it's back, and now I'm really digging in. But I, I started... Last year, season three, when it came to Netflix. Yeah. Where did you start, Eric? Um, I started after season one uh, was released, I guess, through BBC America. Like, I don't know where we got the 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 first season access over here in the States, but um, I had gotten a message from a friend saying, you must watch this because uh, I know what a what a Twilight Zone fan you are, and this takes it to another direction. Um, and so I, and I, I couldn't find it at first uh, for my DVR, and, I, and eventually I just said, you know, record whenever it shows up. Uh, and I guess I didn't, I didn't notice that uh, it was playing late at night, uh, you know, when it recorded. And I just sat down with no really pretense or warning about what that first episode of season one was going to be. And my, my most vivid memory was at the end of that episode, it said, do you want to continue watching? And I was like, no, <laughs> I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's that's what's captivating about the show is that it's like once you've seen one episode you're pulled in and you want to see more and I love that it's not um, connected in a way well I mean we can yeah. get into that but that it is individual episodes because it's like okay I don't need to see storylines continue but I just want to see 
what's next. I want to see what else they're doing, and I want to see what else they're going into. And my introduction was from this guy right here. I'm, I'm sitting next to in Chicago today recording this episode with my friend Mike, and he's the one who actually kind of got me into it. I had heard about Black Mirror. I'm very opposed to TV. This is a discussion for another day, but I'm not a big TV fan. And um, I don't watch a lot of TV, and I'd heard about the show, and I actually thought originally that it was one interconnected series like most TV shows. And then once you explained it to me and other people started sort of telling me about it and referencing Twilight Zone and referencing the fact that it's kind of these single individual sci-fi episodes, then I started watching it and I was hooked. I was like, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. I love this show. It's brilliant. It m messes with sci-fi in a way that, um, or, or plays with and, and gets into deep ideas that we don't normally see, but does it in a really elegant way. Um, and I, I so much admire the show in the way that it has challenged what we're dealing with in society today, but in really fascinating and, uh, dare I say, cautionary tale kind of ways. It, it wasn't easy getting you to watch this show, because <laughs> you were reluctant, as most people are. I mean, I, it's taken me a while to get my wife on board, which is not 100% done yet. And I have like three or four other friends I've been trying to get on this show. I almost feel like it's one of those shows that everybody has to like work people into, but once they watch something, if you pick the right episode, I think, to share with them, they're usually hooked. Like I would never make somebody watch the first episode that they ever made first. No. <laughs> um, like if I told you that I want, to, I want you to watch this show and then an hour later you come back and you're like, why did you just make me watch a show about a guy having sex with a pig? I'm like, oh, no, 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 it's not all like that. <laughs> Keep going. It'll be fine. Yeah. Like, I don't know how they even got a second season or a second episode if that was the first one that anybody saw. Obviously, there's more to the show than just that, but it's, they take risks, and it's really fun to sort of see people's reactions to them. I actually wanted to ask you, before we get into the episodes, I have a couple of questions for you, Eric. Have you been approached by Charlie Brooker to do anything for this? No. Would you, if they came to you, would you love to write for them? In a heartbeat. Okay, because one of the things I was thinking watching a few episodes was how, and, and what I wanted to ask you about is if you know anything about this, is, is just how exactly they craft them, and how they're so good, but they're also so, like, there's, there's a, th a thread between them in terms of the technology being there, these certain moments within the writing that is so impressive within each one, like they don't sacrifice choices about the technology, they don't do cheesy technology choices, and it's it's so meticulous in how each one is put together. How do they how do they do this so well? I don't understand. Uh, from my limited understanding, and I don't know if this changes or evolves at all from season to season, but at some point in time, uh, Charlie had uh, reached out to get something similar to a writer's room, where it was basically people that would come up with concepts or. Uh, ideas of, of a cautionary tale for technology and, you know, pitched out or wrote up little uh, story uh, arena documents or treatments for those kind of things. And then Charlie would sort of adopt those children and find the ones that he loved the most or found the things that he connected with. And he would go off and he would script the episode himself based on those early story ideas. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know if, if how much truth there is to that or how long uh, that process was put in place. Uh, but I think it I could believe that I could buy into that considering how they all feel of the same piece But they also have disparate POVs and they have different ways into to story about stories about technology 
Yeah, that's what I love about it is they have so much diverse filmmakers, especially in this most recent season, and yet they still feel connected in a way. And I mean, when you see the final episode, there is that connection. But but there's still something to them, like you said, that, that makes them feel all part of one connected kind of thing. Just n- not only in terms of the story content, but the quality as well, which really stands out about this series. You mentioned something I want to bring up in when we were watching Archangel and the point where she plugs in her pad when she takes it out later. And you really love this moment. And I was like, those are the moments where I wonder, is like Brooker on set making sure that happens? Or is that Jodie Foster? Like, how do they make sure those moments are there? Because they're they're tiny touches that actually make a bigger difference in terms of the technology being so legit and real. Well, and just to clarify, the conversation we had was, I got really excited because when um, later in the episode of Archangel... And I'm presuming people know at this point we're going to be spoiling these episodes. So <laughs> yes. if you haven't watched Black Mirror and you're listening, you should just stop, watch Black Mirror, and come back. But um, there's a moment late in Archangel where she goes back into the boxes, finds the device, and instead of, which almost always happens, um, the character just turns it on. She, she plugs it in. a charger. Yeah, yeah, I was like, thank you. It's just yeah. a really easy thing to add to the moment it's not essential for storytelling but it just it's just if you're going to make a show about technology just get the little things right and that's a little thing they get right and I, I we were our discussion was whether or not that's something that a single entity like Charlie Brooker would say you have to do this or if that's part of the TV element where you have multiple people looking at a single piece mm-hmm. it's not just one writer one director one vision it's a lot of people working together to see the little things um, I think Brooker does an amazing job of communicating uh, what's important to him, uh, not only in the script, but also in conversations about it in the in the production. Uh, and some uh, directors can really take to that like a duck to water, like they understand what he's after, and then they can they can take that ball and run with it. Like I had the pleasure of having a, a meeting with David Slade, where you know I spent most of that meeting instead of talking about what I was supposed to, uh, asking him about Metalhead. And he said because he he understood where Booker was coming from and he wanted to be as legit as possible, he took all of the uh, like the POV shots of the uh, robot, uh, the dog robot, and it made sure they were rendered through an Xbox to give it much more of a sort of a basic kind of like uh, compressed feel. This makes me want to ask a question to really start getting into the episodes. Is there one particular, this is for all of us, is there one particular episode that you really love the most out of all of them? This season or all seasons? I would love to say like all seasons. Like what's the one but... episode, if you had to introduce somebody to the show, you would do? That's or, a different or question. your favorite. Okay, yeah, I do think <laughs> No, your, per, your personal favorite. Your personal favorite. Yeah. Sure, I guess my, uh, my personal favorite from season four was Hang the DJ. That was mine too. You, I, I, now I, we wouldn't talk about this one because yeah. this is the one that most people love and I want to get into it. Well, I keep sort of battling with what's my favorite because actually I have a couple favorites. But I, I, I do think my, my main sort of reaction with Black Mirror in general is I think it, it's at its best when it handles relationships, when it handles human yeah. interactions on a romantic level and how technology gets in the way. At season one did a really good job of it with the entire history of you. And season two did it through White Christmas in a sort of a roundabout way, but also mm-hmm. with Be Right Back. Yeah. I, I, obviously, San Junipero handled it. And, and it just seems like at its best, it, it, that is where technology has the ripest opportunity to cause conflict. I would, I would say, though, that like I'm a, I'm a process fetishist. So like any, any, any narrative, any film or TV 
episode that dives deep into the process of how technology affects this or the other, that really hits the sweet spot for me. So Crocodile is a very close second because of that. I'm glad you like Crocodile because it, before, I, before I watched it, everyone was controversially saying it was such a bad episode. And I watched it, and I really, I really like it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on to, and and I think the 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 complaints come from her character being so over the top and like brutal, and especially in the, the final final like ten minutes. Yeah. But but the technology, especially how it's never discussed, it just sort of is there, and you see it worked. Um, like I mean, working through the process of the, the insurance woman, like that's such a cool thing that they work into it, and then of course the final moment and the twist with the uh, the guinea pig is like. Phew. So right, this is where yeah. you know you know when you see John Hillcote is the director that yeah. you might get a little bit uh, intense or like <laughs> decisions that aren't cookie cutter. The crocodile killing the baby was one of the most uh, amazing decisions the show has done, in my opinion. It, it would be easy not to do that, but you ha- at that point in the story, if you understand what's happening and why she's killing people, well, she has to kill the baby. In that in that world, if we existed in a world where anybody with eyes and a brain could be tapped into and be um, reviewed like a security camera, it's just. It, but then uh, you, you get that fist pump moment. It's just it's so uh, almost Wait, fist, cathartic. Fist pump when, for killing the baby? No, no, no. Sorry, <laughs> I'm not done. The guinea when when you when they zoom in on the guinea pig. Oh, okay, yeah. And you're like, oh shit, they're gonna mind the guinea pig's vision. But my my only question <laughs> in her character was how not easily, but how much she let the insurance woman finally come in. Because if she knows all this and she's so careful about not letting her vision get through, how, like it was the most clear thing that as soon as she looks into her mind, she's of course gonna see the other people or the, her other murderer of the guy. I found that pretty easy considering how many people think that they can uh, can outsmart a lie detector test. They uh, can sit down yeah. and they're like, okay, I can do this. I just gotta focus. And of course, it's the it's like the you know the, the the old classic of don't look at the elephant in the room. There was something I think in the vision and the way they sort of showed on the screen that probably took me out of it a bit because it wasn't it wasn't clear in the mind where like me I'm thinking of three things at once but her like like it was like it just the damn burst and it all just came out. Um, but I still like that moment and the cinematography in that episode is incredible. Oh um, yeah, that was my first introduction to that actress yeah. too, who I've now seen in multiple places over the last year. And it's funny because I saw Battle of the Sexes after I saw Crocodile. Oh wow! Okay. Um, she's she You're talking about such a very. We got to clarify. Andrea Riseborough. Andrea Riseborough. Sorry, <laughs> she plays a very different character in Battle of the Sexes. And, yeah. And like it's and it's funny when you see actors for the first time in a role like she has in Crocodile. Yeah. And from then on, you're just like, oh well, they can only play psycho killers. <laughs> Which is That's the same true. for if you if for me watching. Um, uh, the killing of a sacred deer first with Barry, uh, I don't know how to say Kogan. his last name, Kogan, and then seeing Dunkirk after, yeah. and I'm expecting him to kill people on the Dunkirk boats because mm-hmm. that's the that's the person I know in my mind. Um, yeah. Well, and we've 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 sort of jumped into the sort of tip of the tongue thoughts, and for the sake of, um, of maybe looking at each episode, we can. Do you want to maybe go back to the first episode, do it in order, or and of course we can sure. just delete this if we just want to keep talking. But like, <laughs> no, 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 because because what I told Mike earlier is that there's going to be something we get into in a thread with one of them that I really want to explore. Um, but we can we can start with Callister. Yeah, I don't want to ever stop a, a good train of thought. Yeah, but it might be 
interesting to go episode by episode when possible um, and go with USS Callister first. Yeah. I'm gonna do that. Do that. Um, I just derailed the train. No, 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 um, no, no. That's fine. Okay, so, but so then, you go ahead. You go ahead. So then, so then let's start recapping the, the episodes from season four, um, which came out, I think, at the end of December. So it's been about a month or so since this has been out. And um, I'm glad that Netflix, this isn't a show that needs to be week per week, even though that's fascinating, but I'm glad that they sort of just dump everything because, especially with Black Mirror, I'm, I'm excited to watch all of them and see what each one has to offer. And then, of course, by the time we get to discussion on Black Museum, that's a very interesting the, the ideas it presents in the grand scheme of the show is a whole different discussion. Um, but with Callister, I th- or sorry, is it USS Callister, I think it's called? Yes, please. Please, USS <laughs> This This show uh, was also one of the most talked about for this season, and I think that's just because the most common thing I heard before I watched it was that it was like fanfic gone wild, which it is, but it also... The one thing I want to say, I really love the episode. I think it's a, a great example of referencing the original series Star Trek perfectly. Um, the performances are great from the whole cast. Uh, the twists it has when it sort of you start to realize what's really going on in the world, like the 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 um, mind fuck of you have the characters in the game being real themselves, but they're not the real people from the real world is is a good challenge for writing for executing on that. But um, I thought the biggest twist to me that I thought was interesting was when they revealed that they don't have any anatomy. Because when everyone is saying this is fanfic on wild, I thought this is going to be the most extensive length of where it goes. But it doesn't, and it provides a more like emotional suffering twist, which is still just as vile and crazy from this guy. Um, the way he knocks his crotch, I can't get that out of my head still. <laughs> That's the funniest thing. Yeah. I also like this episode is one of the only that is sort of really references other external sci-fi. I like the you know, I like the fact that they lean into that and they use the same sort of base technology, the communicator, the transporter, you know, the way that the ship is built, uh, the design of the bridge and, and, and all of that, you know, talking about like um, you know, synonyms for warp drive or, or impulse power. You know, they 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 managed it all. Um, I had a I had a bump on this episode. I got to tell you, like having watched uh, them pay so much attention to the detail of technology and just trying to extrapolate something that was currently available, they got they got super hand wavy at the idea that a strand of DNA contains all our memories and our consciousness, uh, because this wasn't a case of exactly reconfiguring someone in the digital world as they were from uh, the DNA. He obviously has carte blanche to manipulate them, to remove their genitals, to turn them into monsters or, you know, whatever it is he wants to do. Uh, so really the only thing they're getting from the DNA is the consciousness and the memories of someone instead of some sort of biological information. Uh, and that's the one thing that really DNA doesn't give you. So, I kept wondering what was really going on. I thought there was going to be another reveal that showed the limitations of that technology and what he was really doing. I guess I had assumed that perhaps it was just part of the technology at the time that he had somehow been able to glean that just by meeting the people. But that it, it played with my mind in a way where I, I guess I probably gave into it too much because I thought, oh, hey, this is Black Mirror and they're doing something cool. But that was the only thing that I questioned about it a little bit. Um, and it made me wonder what's really going on here. I don't know. I, what I, well, what I really like about this is how it tackles 
not necessarily our interaction with technology, which is something that makes the show really great, but tackles how technology allows us to handle real life, uh, the gaming side of things, right? The way that there's a whole society of people in the world who can't handle reality and spend a lot of time in a world that they can create or can be somebody else in. And it was all about that. And that concept is so deep and scary too when you, if you think about other human beings' lives being on the line. And, um, you know, I mean, there's an obvious, there's obviously the, there's like that Minecraft or Second Life kind of idea behind, you know, creating a world and living however you want to in it. But, uh, you know, it combines a lot of those ideas. The things that made The Sims so popular, the things that made Second Life a thing. But taking it to the next extreme to say this guy is, a, is just kind of a loner, is quiet, he doesn't have a great personality, and he, but he wants to be, he wants to interact with people, he wants to have friends, but nobody takes him seriously. So he creates this world in which you would think he would create, would give them genitals and would uh, take advantage of them in this world where there's no consequences. You would think that he would just have friends. They would all be friends with him. I, I loved the ending and what happens to him, but I think it raises a really interesting question of whether or not he deserves to die because he stole a lollipop and stole a strand of hair and made a fake world where he can be a terrible person. Well, I think his social dysfunction is that he didn't know how to uh, connect with people or be social with other people unless it was from a place of uh, complete power on his end. You know, uh, in his mind, it would be complete safety. You know, he needed that reassurance that he wouldn't be, you know, rejected even casually in a social environment. And uh, And I guess that tapped into the kind of toxic fandom that, uh, Charlie Brooker has spoken about before. I'm also not like a huge Star Trek guy. And not that I don't like it. I just have never made the commitment to watch the original shows. Um, I love the movies, the new movies and, and whatnot. But like a lot of stuff probably flew over my head that I know from just my general pop culture knowledge of Star Trek. Depending on how much you bring with you and your knowledge of that sort of, there's even more to really love. Do you guys want to jump into Archangel now? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, Archangel, I, I enjoyed it. I think it's very clearly an episode about parenting, obviously. <laughs> and qu- question, are any of us here parents? No. No. Okay. Because right. I feel like it would be different to watch it from that perspective. Um, yes. But also, what I really enjoyed about this particular episode is the way it goes to the lengths it needs to go. For example, like in the first 20 minutes before she, you start to see her grow up, I'm gonna be, I was like, oh, I hope they show her what happens when they grow up and she's been censored. And it's definitely an episode about censorship. It's definitely uh, uh, the most cautionary tale, I think, out of every one of them in terms mm-hmm. of a real-life reference, in terms of like, well, this is what happens. And I really like where it goes. I love um, the direction on this. I think there's a, a nice, nice light touch to the characters. Not light, but like appreciative for what they're going through and what they're doing and, and deep understanding for this that she puts into it in a way that it's not hitting you over the head. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I really enjoy it. And I also enjoy the whole technology with the pad. It's, it's like it has everything, it does everything, it, it works. It's, it's but it needs to be episode. charged. <laughs> yeah. yeah i agree i feel like it it felt uh it it just it felt like a legit black mirror episode that you know was a cautionary tale about helicopter parenting uh and at the same time 
It was uh, true to the characters. I never felt like the daughter behaved uh, in a way outside of what a normal kid would behave like. Uh, and that the, the ending wasn't some like double murder suicide situation. It was just the dissolution of this relationship because it was based on overprotectiveness. Yeah. And you know what? I, I was thinking the ending would have been great if it had come fully full circle and presented this idea that, um, and it touches upon this, but not enough is that the mom almost worried that she doesn't want her daughter to turn out like her, like, but it doesn't say that enough. But then it would have been great if the first shot cycled all the way back to her daughter having a baby, like the show starts out and almost saying like, look, this is how she turned out, even though you tried to prevent her not from doing that. But it there's enough of like, she runs off, she's on her own. And, and like you said, the, the relationship has fallen apart and it's it's a very dark ending, but it's also a very, hits, hits home the point that this kind of helicopter parenting, you know, over censorship of over filtering to use their literal term is not going to work. And I thought that was a very strong reference, almost like that's what I say. If I was a parent, I don't I would have mixed emotions on this. I don't know how I'd feel. I'd be like, well, but she needs some censorship, but no. It, <laughs> like like what was Brooker really trying to say here? How much did he really want us to take that away from this? One of the great outs that I think the show takes sometimes is um, the um, banning of technologies within the world that it lives in. Like, it, there's not always a 100% commitment to that technology being adopted by people. The show makes a very clear um, assessment of how society would react to something like this. Yes, we would instinctively want to buy it, but once the regula regulatory boards got a sense of how safe these things really were ethically and physically they would shut them down every time and yeah and the show handles that and then allows the characters to extend beyond that which then adds a sense of danger uh, that I think is really actually important because if we just assume that everybody else is using it then we start to wonder well then why is this case suddenly going awry which I think is really it's always been fascinating to me with the show one other thing that I, um, I really took away from this episode was um, the the addiction to knowledge. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it goes to both sides. Um, the mother is addicted to the knowledge of what's going on at all given times with her daughter, and that's completely understandable. I mean, I have a dog. I don't have a daughter or a son. I have a dog, <laughs> and I put trackers on him all the time. I mean, you know, I, I want to see where he's at. I want to know... Uh, what is how much he slept today? I mean, it's dumb stuff, but to some extent, in this is how we feel when we're a parent of some kind, whatever it is. But on the flip side, which I found interesting, was the addiction to knowledge for the girl. She knew she was being, she was aware of this device. She was aware of the parental controls on her life, and yet the moment that those controls were relieved, she instantly wanted to know things. She wanted to know what cocaine was like. She wanted to know what sex was like. She wanted to watch. She, the kid showed her three things. He showed <laughs> him a violent act. He showed him porn. And he showed him a terrorist um, beheading. I mean, and that, that's that's really interesting. Uh, that's, that's a reflection of society today, yeah, though. Exactly. Like, you, that's you, what you don't it want is. us to drink, so I want to try what alcohol is. Mm -hmm. But this makes you wonder if that's really good or not. That's why the dad character was the best written character that episode, my opinion. Mm. It's absolutely vital to us um, having some context, because who is this woman to say, 
the only way that this child can be raised is by being monitored 24-7. The dad is constantly, like his only lines are always centered around the fact that, well, when you were a kid, we just let you do whatever and you turned out fine. You remember when you yeah. broke your arm? How's that arm doing? Oh, it's, yeah. it still works. And, yeah. and that's the sort of um, audience interaction with the story because that's what we're all thinking. We've talked about Crocodile a little bit already. I was going to say, we did cover Crocodile a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know what more else there's to say about it other than... Um, we, we, I mean, we, I, I, I discussed the kind of the character questionable choices a little bit where I, I felt like she went a little too far, but also... I don't know. It, it almost felt like a movie to me in that way where it's like, of course she's going to have to go down this path. But I don't yeah. know if I believed this particular character as it would have someone else, but I, I enjoyed where it went. Question. Um, Well, how do you feel about the decision to have her live in such isolation? What what, what was the connection there? Why choose for her to live out in the wilderness where nobody ever interacts with her? I was more uh, drawn to the idea that uh, she lived in a place where she really didn't have curtains or blinds. There was just a, a wide view of the place around here that suggested kind of a transparency to her. Uh, and that it was an interesting juxtaposition, juxtaposition to the fact that she was uh, trying to hide something. It was a very clearly a glass house. <laughs> yes. As anything. Yeah, that episode throws you a few curveballs. You just don't quite know where it's going to go. Um, and every time it goes there, I'm like, damn, Jesus, <laughs> she is ruthless. And, and yet I totally believe the technology. And of course, I think there's a natural comparison to Minority Report and how we would react to technology that allows us to do a better job at policing and whether or not it's frankly ethical or whether or not somebody deserves to be punished for something that they saw but didn't report. I mean, there's a lot of layers to the whole policing side of things. Yeah. And yeah. You, you mentioned before, but the, the ending is so perfect, like uh, a redemption where you're like, yes, the guinea pig saves all. It's like it's such a great like finally. <laughs> Poor baby though. And and to then to like they put salt in the wound because it wasn't just about the killing the baby. It's the fact that uh, the baby was blind. Oh, I totally forgot. What a great, what a great moment. What's next? Hang the DJ. Hang hang the DJ. Hang the DJ is a big one. Um, and everyone referenced it as the San Junipero of season four, which it kind of is, but it also kind of isn't. Yeah, I think the the connection there is that it's just one of the few that seems to end on a nice uh, upbeat note rather than a tragic one. Yeah. Well, what do you love about it, Eric? You said this one is your favorite. I love the fact that I was at this point in time we're four episodes in, uh, and if you were like me, you were just continuing to binge them, uh, and I was totally expecting. Another horrible cautionary tale. I, I, I didn't see the twist coming. I didn't understand. what I, I bought into this as the technology of this world, the way that, um, oh, God, what was the episode from season one about, uh, you know, the everybody who would have to uh, spin cycle their way through, you know, to get enough money to do stuff. And, uh, and everybody was trying to get on a reality show. 15 million merits. That's it. That's it. That's the one. So I thought this is a different construct, but it was all around dating of like you're in a society where some computer system has decided to be the ultimate matchmaker for us. Um, and uh, and it's, it's just, it, you know, I went with it. I was like, oh, my God, what if Tinder ruled the world? Yeah, that's actually the reference I thought is like basically this is the extrapolation of what if Tinder was a complicated algorithm. Um, 
on that. And you know, you know, one of the things, and I, I'd be curious to hear what your take on this is, is that the the moment where it reveals it's all a simulation and goes like sucks back into their single device that they had on them at the end, is that I was thinking that this is something the the one thousand simulations it just did is something that happened instantaneously in a way that a computer now can do a thousand simulations instantly, and that it wasn't really them playing things out over 50 years of time or whatever it was it was an instant calculation and it was just shown for the sake of our viewing in a timeline is that does that make sense yes absolutely yeah it gets unpacked for us uh as humans to digest at a reasonable rate versus the instantaneous uh calculation yeah. As much as I agree with you, I I like the idea better that the first simulation has been sitting in an empty space for years and years waiting for a thousand <laughs> simulations to be completed. <laughs> yes, but, but they, then later on they would have met all the other hundreds of them and they would have all become friends within this world. Yeah. That works. That works too. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I, there was another thing I wanted to discuss, which was the CGI in this episode, which was not nearly as impressive as it has been in other Black Mirror episodes. Personally, I don't see this as a mistake. I I have seen this episode now five times, so this is a problem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I think I've overthought it, but but honestly, I just don't think the show is lazy in any way. There's no mistakes that are made. And when you look at the episode as a whole, and there are scenes where the CGI or the, you know, just sort of the design is not always that great. And I think the reason why is because this world that we're watching does not exist to look realistic. It's not the Inception architect story. It doesn't have to right. trick the person. Correct. They're just focused on each other and the people and on the things around them. So for the... For the environment to be imperfect and not to be super polished, I think was an intentional decision. And one other reason why at the very end when it sort of evaporates, it's not it's kind of outdated effects. I think that was yeah. intentional. I, I, this is changing from what you said, but I want to say this, this episode really hit me in a way where I felt this is so real, it's like making me sick. <laughs> because I, <Yeah. laughs> within a relationship sense, I was like, oh, this is so real. Like, there's this great moment in it where it shows her going off on the 36-hour hookups, like, over and over and over, and that montage of sequences and her going through it. But what I love about it is, is it isn't sh her showing her being satisfied with it and happy, which is probably the real-world reference. It's this idea of she's, like, dissatisfied with it, which is the realistic, the deep, deep realistic aspect of what we're really feeling, even though we don't want to admit it. And, of course, it's in the context of the world the, the, the simulation world but just so much of this episode hit me probably even more than Santa Junipero where I'm just like oh man this is right and they know they want to be together but they can't be because of this freaking app but of course there's yeah. that sweet ending which I think pulls it all together yeah you know I do think it, it, it brings up a really in, a really important idea about relationships and the, and the path that we take and whether or not we are in control of our destiny and without getting into religion actually talking about fate and whether or not everything happens for a reason which the computer says and frustrates the characters because in real life we hate that we hate that answer but totally but if you dissect the answer and you get to watch it in real time you're like oh okay the reason why it went from five years to 20 hours is because he broke a promise if you had kept your promise if you could know 
how long every relationship you were ever in was going to last, how would you handle it? Would you, what would you dwell on? What would, you know, five years even was kind of a letdown for me. I was sad when that happened. I, we knew that she wasn't the one for him because they weren't matched up as the one at that point. But mm-hmm. to see five years, I was like, oh, shit. Like, they should be together for longer than that. Five years is okay. But, like, they're, yeah. these two are supposed to be together forever. Yeah, exactly. And that was, I think that was ultimately what he was fighting. He was, he was, he was struggling with the idea that there was already an arbitrary terminus to this relationship that, that, uh, uh, that determined basically that when there were, when they would have to part ways versus, uh, the, the power of choice for themselves, you know, obviously he didn't want to part ways with her ever. On a, on a separate note, one thing I was very impressed by uh, was the attention to detail on production design and wardrobe choices, color especially. Um, yes. the more I, this is one of the reasons why I've watched the episode so many times. I, I've paid so much attention to color choices. Um, the blue, there's a lot of focus on yellow, blue, red, lots of primary colors. And, and every scene, the wardrobes are all sort of working together. I noticed the necklace that um, the women wear is always the same, except for the except for once, which is during the scene when um, he reveals that he looked at the expiration date. And I don't know. I just I would love to pick the brain of the production designer or the people behind those decisions because there was a lot of thought that went into it, and it's very subliminal. But it it says a lot about the fact that that world was constructed and that those are not real people. I, it's, it's, it's really, really pretty cool to continue to inspect as you watch it over and over and over again. I, I want, I want to bring us into Metalhead. All right. <laughs> because every time I think about Metalhead, I love it more and more and more and more and more. And um, I, I, you know, I, I, I would probably say Hang the DJ and Black Museum are my are more favorite episodes than Metalhead to me. But uh, I, I get such a I don't know what it is that I get out of Metalhead, but I just love it. And um, the dog it, is great. It's the dog, man. Uh, it's, a, it's it's so terrifying. It is easily <laughs> yeah. the scariest episode they've ever done. And I found Playtest to be kind of scary, but it was designed as a horror episode. You know, I mean, it, true. This was terrifying because <laughs> of the way it was done. Minimal dialogue, black and white. Um, not a lot going on, just a strict survival story. And I like with, how the dog yeah. is like threatening without being threatening. It's just this like cute little thing that's like gonna kill you. Yeah, like a cicada that can murder you. <laughs> it's shaped. It's also the size of a dog, and can shoot and and you and put a knife in its hand. It's terrifying. <laughs> um, it is. Yeah, um, but but really really like. Now, I don't want to call it low concept because it's certainly not, but compared to most of the other episodes, it is. This is very stripped down bare, which is why I love the black and white decision. It, it, sometimes I think filmmakers do it because they don't like the way that it looks in color. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think this time it was very clearly like super high contrast, high shutter speed, designed yeah. to make you somewhat uncomfortable and to make your senses hone in on just the one piece, which is will she survive? Exactly, and uh, on top of that, just the, the you know you can start to extrapolate where this came from of like uh, you know the 
the the way that Amazon warehouses just start cropping up and then, and then start serving on whatever it is that we want to buy, it turns into like the, sort of the the, the uh, online answer to what the WalMarts or the other mega stores of the world. Uh, and then how uh, security becomes automated as well. Like if you're if you're trying to reduce the number of people involved in a transaction, eventually you're going to get some kind of security method that is also automated. And and you can almost hear the the salesman saying like, well, well, you know, if you want to upgrade to a military solution where it'll hunt people down that trespass on your property and try to steal. I mean, that's still legal. That's you could buy these. We'll give you a pack of six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what was. Um really curious about the episode was the unsaid and I think obviously that's important to um, why it was designed the way it was and it's clearly um, you know some kind of apocalypse had happened you can sort of visualize the the place that she came from as some like walled off little town or some building where there's survivors I mean the husband and wife in bed having rotted away after blowing their brains out is so layered and like brings so many ideas to mind of what happened in this society and then at the end to show that there were dozens of these dogs and it wasn't just a happenstance that it's like some old model of a security dog this is these things are like roaming yeah and why uh it, it brings up it makes this way more than just what happens in the episode you can actually have a discussion coming up with your own theories of what was going on outside of the story yeah you know eric you just you just actually changed my mind because my complaint was going to be that the ending when you reveal what's in the box i was a little like oh okay teddy bears right like not that amazing but the way you just put it within the amazon context completely changed my mind and that it's because <laughs> no, it's as simple as that it's just it's as simple as like oh hey this is actually she just wanted something basic and this is how warehouses would be in the black mirror future and it's it's I don't know now I'm okay thank you now I'm it's a moment <laughs> no. and like I don't I don't know how like it's, it wasn't that easy to tell but this is the one that I've not watched multiple times and there are certain telltale uh, bits in the aisles and in the way that the the shelving is built and organized uh, that su- that uh, suggests to me that it is actually in one of these automated warehouses it's one where some kind of robotic uh, piece comes in and grabs materials and uh, and there are actually no people there, which just made it even creepier to me. Yeah. I didn't even think about it like that. Now I get to watch it again. Probably the easiest one to rewatch too because it is so bare bones and it is so straightforward in terms of uh, the action of it. And you know, I will say I want one of these docs. I mean, I don't want it to attack anyone, but <laughs> I want one to like just have on my shelf. They're so cool. Mm. I and think that's a terrible yeah. idea. <laughs> that's a terrible idea. Hang in there, Mike. We don't lose you. Uh, and dropping some meta knowledge, uh, Maxine Peake, who plays the the lead in it, is actually a uh, she's a playwright in real life, and she's just she's written and performed uh, a number of really compelling plays that are kind of uh, socialist in their in their in their philosophy. You know, they're anti-capitalism, and so going in with that knowledge of like you have someone who is. Uh, very much a fighting a system here that in real life she believes in her bones of like we have to stay away from this kind of future. Well, um, the last episode of season Black Museum, which I think brings a whole new discussion to bear, which is um, how Black Mirror has become self-aware and yeah. uh, 
it's 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 been there in the lining of the show because a lot of the technology is very clearly designed to work within the same universe. A lot of the the the, the head the little head dot things, the, they're they're all look similar, and some of the technology in like episode three of season one, the entire history of you, is the same as the technology in Archangel but different in subtle ways, the sort of way they scroll through the memories. It's the same software, just different. Um, right. And so to have an episode where, although the three stories are new, it, there's an awareness of, okay, well, we're in a little world, and this guy has been at, the, at, at every step of the way. There's been one company that's kind of had their hand in everything. It's so fun. And to have it be played by that actor, I, I can't, I don't remember his name, but the role of Haynes' character was so much fun. Oh, yeah. Douglas Hodge. Douglas Hodge. I, I feel like this episode, this is what I feel, changes everything within terms of Black Mirror. Because it now almost fully presents the idea that, hey, it might all be interconnected. It might all be the same world. Or at least elements of most of the stories might all be interconnected. Because there's nothing to say with the previous episodes that that wasn't the case. It just never... They just never really tied anything together, but now they do. And then now, thinking about that and going back and looking at things, you can see, as you just pointed out, some of the various little threads that do interconnect. Like, I noticed there's candy that they eat in Metalhead that I felt like is, was in another previous episode. And there's little, which I think to me was like almost like a slusho thing, where it's like, okay, we're going to have these little things within it. Mm-hmm. But, I, but it almost changes everything from Black Mirror in a way where it isn't just... It, 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 and I like this. It's not a bad thing, but I like that it's not just solo episodes anymore. It's almost like, hey, there is a bigger thing. And, of course, they're going to, I hope, continue solo episodes, but almost can, like hint at us and wink at us that maybe there's more going on here and maybe there is an interconnectedness that could, in one episode in the future, play into it together some way. And it doesn't change any of the previous episodes, but it makes you actually think about them more. Well, I'd be curious to see... If there were some things in that museum that have not been in previous episodes, I'll be curious to see if next season some of those things are props from next season. You know, like, is that how deep they're going, or is it just other stuff? That's like Kevin Feige level of planning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, hey, we live in the Marvel Universe, don't we? That's, they got to play on that. <laughs> well, I will, yeah. tell, I will say, like, um, have spent the last couple of years working on a documentary that... Um, that I'm that I directed about healthcare, and have had my brain sort of in that space for a while. And to see an episode that handles one of the biggest issues that we face in our documentary about diagnose, diagnosis and diagnostic error, how hard it is to diagnose properly, it was really cool to see that in the Black Mirror universe. And um, of course, it took a turn for the worst for the characters and that's what black mirror does but it was so realistic while being completely unrealistic which is um the fun of it all i just thought what an interesting idea and i had been wondering you know if are we going to get back into the healthcare sector with this show because san junipero touched it mm-hmm. very lightly that was a really cool concept to me doctors yeah. being able to feel what a patient feels without experiencing the actual problem that is a really smart thing to come up with i'm glad they did that the ideas in this one are just so fascinating wrapped around such a fun story with the um the main girl i don't remember her name either but with her just 
with like messing with things. I, I wished her thread tied into something bigger too. <laughs> but it's really cool to watch an episode that is not where the ending changes the whole beginning without it being a massive twist. I mean, it's somewhat of a twist. But if you, when you finish the episode, when I finished the first time, I instantly sw- scrolled back to the beginning because. Because her reaction when she gets out of the car and looks at the museum is like, mm-hmm. It, it, I love that line. Right? I love she delivered that. It's so great once you know the context. And, and when she goes around and sees the car and looks up and the camera pan or tilt implies that she's looking at the sign that says Black Museum. But in fact, she was looking at the air conditioner that she was about to hack. And yeah. then the way that they... Um, in terms of blocking, put the water bottle in the foreground when he's taking it out of the out of the the purse. I at first time I saw that I was like, that's a weird place. Like, why would you block half of the shot with that water bottle? Then he chugs the water bottle. I'm like, something with this water. And then uh, and patted myself on the back on that one. But uh, <laughs> I loved I loved that kind of attention to detail on things they knew no one was paying attention to. But the second time around, you'd be like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Because yeah. it's always fun to watch a revenge flick when you don't know it's a revenge flick. Which brings us to, I think, our two final um, discussion points about Black Mirror that we wanted to share with you. I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off because you finished with yours. Um, I wanted to ask each of you, what is one topic that Black Mirror hasn't tackled that you'd like to see them tackle? I'll start with, for me, at religion. I'd love to see how the people behind Black Mirror see the congruence of technology and religion and how that could go awry. That's a good one. I'd like to see that tackled as well. But have you guys put any thought into what other topics you'd be curious to see in the Black Mirror universe or devices or something like that? Okay, I have two. Because the first one I was thinking was time travel. But there's a boatload of time travel films every year, and we see this so much. So the next one I was thinking about was... Um, and I was thinking time travel in the way of like primer where it wouldn't be ridiculous in like a time loop but in a way where they address it in a very realistic way like if mm-hmm. someone actually invented some machine like that but the next one I would think would be creating humanity kind of like AI-ish but in the way um, uh, there was this Paul Dano film a couple of years ago where he he, he writes a novel about a woman and she appears in his, oh. his, his yeah, uh, world that was great. Uh, look it up for me while I'm talking about it. But the, yeah. but that kind of film where like, what if we existed in a world where, and I think Futurama did an episode like this where you could cre- you had like a a, a a dummy human and you could create a personality that you wanted to fit to you, and then this human would come to life with that personality and how they would deal with that in that context. Uh, Ruby Sparks is the film, yeah, um, which is a great film. I really love this film. It's very it, it actually addresses it in a very mm-hmm mess with your mind kind of way but those are the two ideas that i could come to mind that i would love to see yeah yeah that's that's a good one um i got i fell in love with this uh film uh advantageous it's directed by jennifer fang uh and it really deals with like um the the new like population gets to a place where uh, achievement and competition is so fierce for anybody in life to like try and secure and maintain a job, uh, to get anywhere in school, to get into the right school, 
and uh, and it, it gave you a really uh, intense feeling of like, oh God, would I be able to survive in the future uh, if I am up against if it's such a high bar for success, you know, to get anywhere? And success really ends up being survival. Uh, it was a fascinating look, and I and I would love to see uh, a Black Mirror episode that focused on achievement uh, in some way. And my my backup uh, my backup idea was also I uh, and this is this is purely re revenge fantasy on my part, but it would be really interesting to see how the internet culture might change if an anonymous service suddenly showed up that uh, that you could hire that someone could hire to say um, here is a comment that was left uh, and it was directed at me on social media somewhere. Here is a comment by somebody, and I don't know who it is, but they said they said this horrible thing to me. I am now hiring you and paying you to track down who it is and have that comment done to them. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Eric, I, ho I hope a, they hire you and element. you get to write one of these episodes. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's an element of that to that one episode uh, with the social media serial killer, but not... Oh, hate, hated in the nation, yeah. yeah. A little bit. No, but not in yeah, a very, um, very fringe way. But man, that would be fun. That that would be a black mirror. I can see for sure. Yeah. Well, this this is probably a, a reference for what the other last point I wanted to make, which is that because Black Mirror has sort of reached the a level in culture now that a lot of people know about it, have been watching it. There's this thing that really annoys me about it, which is when anything goofy technology comes online, or even a moment in current society that happens that's related to like to technology or the internet or Twitter, people are like, "Oh, that's very Black Mirror," and like half the time, I'm just like, "No, it's not." <laughs> You don't. This <laughs> this show is so intelligent and has so much depth to it and so many big ideas to it that it deserves better than that. Like every once in a while, there's something that fits that description. Like I tweeted recently about this. I don't even know how it's. I real, disagree but, with you on this. I'm well, preface but that. but but there's this idea of this. Uh, you put this box over your head to watch a movie. Mm -hmm. I don't even understand. But I was like, that's a straight up Black Mirror reference where you watch movies by yourself sitting on the ground. But also just no. this. Well, my point is that I just hate. Well, I know it's not, but I just. Maybe I'm doing what I am complaining about, but I just don't like how people demean the show by by saying everything now is Black Mirror-esque. When if you actually watch the show, which maybe these people haven't, there's so much more nuance to what's going on, and and we deserve better references. And there's and and most importantly, and I'm gonna get serious here, there's so much cautionary references in Black Mirror that I think we should actually consider for real and be like, look, this is what's gonna happen if we let social media get out of hand. We're going to let it ruin our lives, and we need to prevent ourselves from doing that. There's so much, and that's what I like about what Charlie Brooker has been doing with this is that it's almost forcing us, at least if you really care about what you're watching, to reflect on our own choices and our own lives and our own society in a way where we need to take the lessons he's teaching us from these episodes and consider them and put, like, take them to heart and think about it and not just Knows view it as pure pure entertainment but like there's more to it this isn't just pure entertainment there's yeah. so much more to them nosedive nosedive did that to me they they, they don't all catch me uh, deep down some of it's just entertainment for me even though i i understand the message nosedive really actually like has stayed in my consciousness um, because it is just too real with the way we handle social media and our expectations and what we want people to do with our posts and shit like that. I mean, it's just, it's really real. And I know what you mean. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's nice to see that the show has penetrated 
this sort of social conversation to a point where it's now like the Xerox of, of for copying, <laughs> you know, like, like you, there's a word, once you've hit it, you know, people start using your thing as the term for all things in that, in that space. And anything technology that's kind of scary is now Black Mirror. Especially when you see like a robot doing a backflip. People are like, oh shit, Black Mirror, we're all going to die. <laughs> right. Right? No, probably not. Um, the robot doing a backflip is not as terrifying as you feel like it is because you saw Black Mirror. But I guess if we're all aware of it, then Skynet won't take over and that's a good thing. Now we don't have to rely on Steven Spielberg to protect us from what lie ahead. We can watch Black Mirror. Trust in Spielberg. I, I, Spielberg is a visionary. Let's not forget that. But um, we have more context now for what could go wrong with uh -huh. technology through Black Mirror, which is pretty cool. It is. Do you have any? Agreed. Do you have any final thoughts on the the whole series and anything like that, Eric? Well, I I can just say that I I am I am grateful that it really is, it, it hasn't ever gone the way of uh, AI being sort of the the end of humanity that so many doomsday stories talks about how, Oh, if some, you know, if AI ever gets really smart, it'll kill us all off. Um, you know, I'd run into a, uh, an article written by Ted Chang that, uh, attacked that head on and said, let's dispense with that myth. Let's, let's stop talking about the idea that AI is going to be the one that kills us off with some hypothetical of like, Oh, if its job is just to do X, and to be the best at doing X, then eventually it's going to salt the earth and slaughter all of us in order to do X as best as possible. Uh, because Ted says nowhere in uh, computer programming or machine learning do you, or or or, or even a more compl uh, complex AI, do you get to that kind of philosophy? The only place you find that is in sociopathic capitalists, is in people who who are fine to completely devastate the planet and murder a bunch of people if it means it makes them more money. So I guess the the lesson here is don't let a sociopathic capitalist learn code. Correct. Okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what we're looking at now is the weird bias that has sort of infected our technology. It is an entirely a human creation, and the and sort of the the footprint left of it. Uh, that the technology has to deal with, uh, you know, we're running into that. We're running into like um, hand automatic hand dryers that won't detect the hands of people of color. You, you, you've got uh, facial recognition software that that sees a number of Asian people as the same. You, you've got uh, uh, interesting image search software that will take uh, faces of people of certain races and compare them to animals. When you talk about electronic health records, which have revolutionize medicine but also allow the room for human error because we don't know how to use a click down properly like every piece of technology introduces a new challenge it's never going to perfect something because it's only going to create a new challenge or a new problem that yeah, we have to face exactly this is why i love the sci-fi genre is the way it addresses modern issues in a, in a really fascinating way and i think we're in such a beautiful era of modern sci-fi that i mean thanks to star wars and star trek and everything but with all of these great films and great tv series that are that are really challenging modern society and what we're going through now and approaching it and questioning it and examining it and it's i love it so much because i'm a sci-fi nerd but also just because it is so deep and so impressive what they think about and what they make these days and, and how much 
entertainment can really l- make us look at ourselves. Yeah. Like a film like Arrival did that very well, I must say. <laughs> it was everyone said it was the great film that connects us and I was like, "Yes, please let this be. It has that moment." I mean, the final the final like thing wraps it all up is so well, let's, good. Let's hope we get uh, more stories about uh, humanity being good to each other. Yeah. Well, that's what's funny about Black Mirror. Some of them have that, some of them don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's reality for you. Some people are good, some people are. But let's let's, <laughs> totally. let's keep positive. Totally. Let's keep positive. Well, all right, guys. I'm going to leave you to the rest of your podcast. I got to I got to bow out now. No worries. Thank you so Thanks much for, for coming time. on, Eric. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. See you. Bye. And continuing on with this episode, I want to do a brief recap of the Sundance Film Festival, which just wrapped up in Park City, Utah a few weeks ago. I was attending this festival for my 12th year in a row. This is one of my favorite festivals in the world. I've been going uh, nonstop since, I think, 2007 was my very first year. Uh, And I really, 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 really love Sundance so much. Um, Even though it's cold and snowy, it's one of my favorite festivals because it's cold and snowy. And I go to Sundance because I get to see all these uh, very brand new, fresh off the editing rack, so to say, films that are selected by uh, very smart programmers who bring these films to showcase the best of American independent talent and some world cinema talent and um, share all this for the first time. And it's a lot of these films are world premieres. A lot of these films are literally a week or two from being finished when they bring them to the festival. And um, they show work in progress cuts. No, but they. Some people get told uh, that they were approved in November, and they spend the next month to two months finishing it, so it's ready before the festival. Which uh, is sometimes that happens. I mean, right. it can always happen at festivals. I have a question for you. Yes. Cold and snowy. Yes. I, I know that that's part of the allure of Sundance but where does everybody put their jackets on the seats so it's just like jackets everywhere yes there's no coat check anywhere that's and crazy to me it is it's not so much of a problem some of the venues really movies in the winter it's the same thing yeah and some of the movies really or some of the venues are pretty pretty rough because they're the seats are packed together but i've never really had a problem with jackets mostly actually i've never really had a problem with any of that it's um the biggest problem is with one of the venues the library cinema being uh like has no stadium seats it's just like a room that they put these junky cinema seats into and it's a little bit rough but um, other than that, the festival runs great, and it's it's one of my favorite. Um, it's also great to just catch up with all my friends, all my all my film critic friends who go there. And um, and the, the other important thing for me about going to the festival is being able to see films before they've been picked up, which means there's nothing that can clue you into what this film is going to be about. I walk into a film where all I know is the title, I've seen maybe one photo, and read a brief synopsis, and I know the cast, and that's it. You have no idea what's going to happen. You have no idea you know how it's going to play out of course this means it could be terrible but generally i enjoy most of what i see and i appreciate it because it's usually something really original or challenging or interesting Um, one of the biggest references from this year for a film that did that for me is uh this film called sorry to bother you which was made by this musician named boots riley and it's his first film and it's totally insane it's you probably heard about it because it's one of the, the buzziest films from sundance this year because it's just this like nuts off the charts ridiculous like they try everything but in a in a in a fun way kind of film because it's about a, a kid played by uh, Lakeith Stanfield kicks out right huh? he's, 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 
He's in Get Out. He's in Short Term Twelve. He's in a bunch of good stuff. He's one of my favorite actors. Uh, he he plays this kid from Oakland who takes this telemarketing job and then suddenly works up the ranks because he has he can he realizes he can use his white voice, and um, then things get crazy when he works up the chain. And there's there's segments that are Michelle Gondry inspired where the sets move and change. There's um, Office Space s comedy and weird things happening. It's got a little bit of that Mike Judge in it. And then there's also there's also um, these crazy I don't even know how to describe them. There's a, p- a part to it where these creatures, that's as much as I'll say, appear, and you're just like, what the fuck is going on? It's insane, and it's so crazy and so cool. And it's not the film's a little rough because he's a first time filmmaker, so it's it's got a little bit of sloppiness to it. But I didn't mind it because it's so original and so out there and so just balls to the wall crazy that I, I love this film for, for being that way even though it's not my favorite film of the festival so um, Sundance is just a, a fun time it, it's it's also exhausting I see at this film festival I saw 38 films in 10 days which means that one day I saw 6 films in one day uh, most of the time I'm seeing 3 or 4 in one day um, I'm very committed I, I since this is my 12th festival I know you everything you should be committed well I'm committed to Doing no, nothing to, except going to films. You should be committed to it, like an <laughs> asylum. That's a lot. That's I too am many a movies. Film lover, you come. No, it's just because I. Are those all in theater, or do you see screeners? I saw four screeners, which and is um, including the thirty-eight. No, or? so in total, forty-two films wow. in ten days, which is uh, yeah. It's for for those of you who haven't been to a film festival, the thing that I reference is that of course you're not going to remember everything, but the things you do remember are the films that matter. And the films that stick to you in some way because you've seen five films in one day, those are the ones that stand out for whatever reason. And of course, every film critic will admit, even though not often publicly, that their experience watching a film at a festival is different than if they were to be watching it at home or out of the context of a festival, which always happens to me when there's something I love at a festival and then I watch it again at home when it's out on, on home entertainment and it's just like it doesn't either live up to it or it's a completely different experience. Is there an example? None that I want to admit, mm. uh, or th- can think of off the top I mean, of like, my is head. there an example though of a movie that you just didn't really get into because you were so exhausted one day at a festival or at Sundance, and then you watch it again? And you're like, damn, that was a great movie. I well, don't remember being that good. I can't remember, but I, one I would say that that would happen is Mudbound. I saw Mudbound last year on the ninth day of the festival, and I realized that if I had probably sat down and watched it out of the context of the festival, properly rested. I probably would have appreciated it more, like you did when we talked about it on our top ten. I, I well, I watched it on an airplane, so. Well, but nonetheless, you loved it, though. <laughs> yes. Did you really watch it? On an airplane? I, I really did, but then I watched it again on my TV. Get out! Because no, I mean, I mean, sometimes I look mud, not to get off topic too much, but Mudbound did not come with a lot of fanfare, like everything that happens with Netflix, right? They just right. plop it out. By the time it came out, is what you're saying, and. Because it's on Netflix, it, there's an inherent assumption that I can watch it on an iPad or I can watch it on um, on iTunes, that I don't have to watch it in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. That's a, an unfortunate assumption that comes with Netflix movies, but it's not the case. My Bound would have worked in the biggest screen imaginable. I'm glad it got nominated for cinematography. It's beautiful. And, and I'm different, though. I mean, we're, we're, we're going to have to have a podcast someday where we talk yeah. about... Yeah, we because we have very different views on whether or not it's even doable to enjoy a movie appropriately on an iPad, on an airplane. I think you can, 
but um, you have a different opinion. Well, we'll save that. For we'll now. save it for later. Because this, because Sundance, what I do love about it is that everything I'm seeing is in the cinema, usually on a big screen, and they usually deck it out with like full on Dolby Atmos sound cranked cranked up. Everything I see there is like loud to a point where even I'm a little bit like this is too loud, which is crazy because every time I go to the regular movie theater, it's never loud enough, and. Um, so when I when that happens to me, I'm actually like, okay, fine, I'll accept this because I enjoy this, but but it's a little bit weird. Um, but no, I uh, Sundance, it wasn't this. Okay, so last year at Sundance, I saw Call Me by Your Name, which if, if you remember, my top ten is my number one, and it lasted as my number one from January of last year all the way to the end. There was no film at Sundance this year that did that for me. Maybe I didn't see it, but I highly doubt it. But it, that's the one thing I'll preference. Uh, uh, sorry start out by saying because everyone try at least the critics I know when we're at Sundance try to gauge on this level like is this a bad Sundance is this a good Sundance and I hate this discussion because and I wrote an article about it you can read it on first showing where no matter what these films are important and innovative and challenging and creative and they're exciting to see in their own regard for that reason even if they're not the best of the year, there's something impressive about them. For example, as I was talking about, sorry to bother you, it's, it's got some problems. But you know what? It's such a creative, cool, original film that it's great to have it there and see it there and to then give it a life after Sundance. Was last year the one, was Sundance when Birth of a Nation got bought for someone? That was two years ago. Okay. That's the thing about Sundance. Like... It, sometimes there's a big newsworthy headline about a movie getting mm. bought for a ton of money. Never is it usually the movie that does well, right? Like yeah, the, I hate it, that though. I think Sundance is a very interesting place uh, to learn about movies because they're... I mean, you watched 42 movies. Mm-hmm. What? How many of those movies do you think the average moviegoer is going to engage with this year? Like two, right? <laughs> the average. Movie goer. And I mean, I hope people I, engage with more, but the average. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yet Sundance is, without question, the premier place to show your movie in the American festivals. Um, and it's just a really, it's just that the whole festival thing is so fascinating to me. And as a filmmaker, the desperation of wanting your film to be in the festival, but not being so tied down to the idea that just because it's in a festival or because it killed at Sundance that it's going to be the next big thing in American cinema. Yeah. It's just a, a really interesting um, dichotomy, I guess, you know, looking at how it works. Yeah. If anything, it's a showcase, right? It is, and I appreciate it for that. I've learned enough to look for those kind of films anyway. And, you know, for you, you were talking about sales. Sorry to Bother You was, was one of the big sales. I think yeah. it got picked up for $6 million from Annapurna. And um, that one I feel like could be a hit. And, you know, I don't want to measure films by, oh, hey, does it make its money back, blah, 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 blah. These are all headlines. I want the film to just be seen. I want people to take an interest in it. And, of course, you measure being seen by how much money it makes. But also, when it hits home entertainment, that also matters. And we never really see those numbers anyway. Um, But I want to talk about some of my other really big favorites of the festival, um, the films that I really loved. And I already wrote an article about it, but I just want to recap them. And and if you have any questions about them, please ask or contact me and ask me if I've seen something. I I mean, my list of 42 is online. Uh, But my number one was Assassination Nation, which is this midnight film. And it's uh, the context of it is about 
this town, uh, Salem, Massachusetts, and these four girls, it's set in modern times, these four high school girls in this town um, are the center of the story. And basically what happens is that this hacker starts putting out people's entire online digital histories, like everything, photos, messages, everything, browser history, and lets it disrupt the town. And it's not just simple comedy, social commentary on this. It's this like really, the script is one of the smartest scripts of the festival, which is crazy because I was not expecting this. And then the filmmaking is incredibly impressive for this kind of small indie film. There's this amazing 10 minute tracking shot. The cinematographer is this um, Hungarian cinematographer uh, and he's so damn good. And the, f the way the film plays out, it's I think it's almost two hours, is this just like, incredibly engaging and entertaining and like at times totally crazy example of that kind of social media online story being taken to the full intelligent length of what you could do with that with this really vibrant cast of uh four women one of them is a trans transgender actress and she's great because they play it in a way where she's just there like there's no question she's just part of this girl's crew and it's exactly the way it should be um, and everyone in it was great and the final like 10 minutes because it has something to say too It's not just like fun, you know, hey, this is crazy It's like there's actually something being said in this film and it really gets you and I loved it A lot of other people I know flipped for it. It's such a great film um, And that one was I think the biggest sale of the festival at 10 million from neon <laughs> and um, I think it has the potential to be a hit, but I'm Based on the track record of these films, there's no guarantee of that. Neon's kind of come out of nowhere, too. They did Itania. Yeah. I They're a good heard. company. One of my other favorite films is The Tale, uh, which is an autobiographical film by Jennifer Fox, which is also one of the most talked about films of the festival, but it's brilliant. Uh, I, I, I was. It's a very hard film to talk about because it's basically about a, a story of a woman played by Laura Dern who discovers she's in her 40s and she's a film, doc filmmaker living in New York. And her mom discovers this old letter she wrote when she was 13 years old where she kind of admits in this letter that she was sexually abused. And she has to go through this, like, dealing with the fact that this happened and she didn't really admit it to herself until now. And so what the film actually does is it goes back and shows and tells this whole story and it's really unsettling. Uh, it will piss people off, but it's designed to provoke because you see it happen in a way where you're just like this is disgusting but it's so well done and more importantly what's great about the film beyond that aspect of it is the filmmaking where there's a lot of these tricks about playing with memory and questioning things so for example uh they'll replay the same scene a different way because she'll suddenly say well that's not how i remembered it or this is what actually happened versus the way i thought i remembered it and you see the same scene differently or something will happen where the characters will move or be different. And the way this film does it was brilliant. And it, it, it really gets to you. Um, I, I am a man, so I can only talk about it from my perspective. But the women I talked to who saw it were just so like overwhelmed with what they had just seen. They couldn't even talk about it by the end. But the film is so provocative in that way. It will cause a discussion, which is what she's trying to do. It's meant to, to um, encourage a discussion that we don't want to have, but we need to, because it asks these questions. It breaks down everything we think we know and challenges it and forces us to confront how messed up this can be. It's great. Um, and it was picked up by HBO, so it will have a distribution. 
Uh, another one of my favorites was a film called Puzzle, which is this, uh, on the lighter side, a much more charming film with Kelly McDonald, who uh, plays this sort of reserved housewife who's living with her, her husband and her two older sons in this uh, somewhere outside of New York City, and she discovers that she's really great at putting puzzles together. And she goes into the city and meets uh, Irfan Khan as her like puzzle partner. And they kind of start a little romance. And it's just such a like light, enjoyable film. It reminded me of Patterson a lot, which is one of my favorites, uh, the Jim Jarmusch film. And she, she, Kelly McDonald's is so good, but this is just her on a whole other level where she's just giving this performance where she doesn't even need to say anything, but you feel how deeply conflicted she is in her mind. And it's a really brisk 90-minute film where not a lot is going on. It's very light, but it's also very comedic at times, like her delivery um, with certain lines. Like a one- or two-word delivery is just spot-on perfect. Random question. Yes. American accent or original accent? Shoot, I don't even know. I'm bad with accents. I mean, if she had I think she has an American accent. You would know if she was speaking her original voice. Yeah, but so many movies now just have them default to that that sometimes I don't know if it's like, oh, she's she a, has a she's super a, she's a intense British accent. Irish, I think. Oh, Irish, okay. But it, it would be Pardon like, me if I'm wrong, you know, they could be like, oh, she was from Ireland and she now lives in America. But I don't, I think it was American. I'm pretty damn sure. And Puzzle, yeah, it's, it's great. Which reminds me of another film that was one of my favorites, which is Jason Reitman's new film, Tully. Uh, this is his latest collaboration with Diablo Cody, who wrote the scripts for Juno and Young Adult that he made before this. And it's a great script about um, Charlize Theron, also stars again, like from young adult. But the, in this one, Charlize Theron plays a mother who is dealing with the burden of having her third child. And I think it's Ron Livingston plays her husband. And although their relationship is great, the family is just, 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 uh, just destroying her because she has to wake up all night to deal with the baby and all of these things. And so she basically takes on a night nanny, played by Mackenzie Davis, who I love so much. She's so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And learns through working with her how to figure out how to do things. And there's not there's not this like dark side to it. It's, it's very light and comedic as well. But with this really smart writing that uh, there's something that happens later on which changes things. And that's part of what plays into the way it all feels the rest of the time is you're just enjoying it and um, Charlize Theron obviously amazing in this role and Mackenzie Davis uh, just always gets better and better every single role Um, so these two films not similar in any way but also just really really wonderful both of them Tully and Puzzle Um, and another one I really want to mention is Search which is this film told entirely on computer screens and uh, while this has been done before, I know the film Unfriended is like this. Um, Modern, and I, Modern Family did an episode too. Yeah, and there was a short film five or six years ago called Noah that did this too. Um, so it's not a new concept, but I think what the filmmaker has done from this with this film, uh, he's a, a guy named Anish Shiganti, I think is his name. He used to work at Google, so he, he has this tech background, and he's sort of redefined what's truly possible with this kind of storytelling. It's not just a gimmick. What makes Search different is there's this beautiful emotional core to it, and I don't want to ruin it because it sets it up in the first 10 minutes. It's kind of like up in a way. And basically, um, this plays out throughout the entire film, and then something happens he has a relationship with his daughter where th- something happens and he tries to solve this with and figure things out through the computers and it's just so good um i, I was i wasn't just like hey this was a good movie i loved it i was like stand up and applaud and give you a, a standing ovation as soon as it ended kind of experience with this film 
Um, and I really think it, it sort of sets a precedent for what's possible with this kind of computer screen filmmaking. And I know people won't believe me, but until you see it and you see this and realize it, uh, it's that great. And so there's two other films I want to mention, two documentaries. One of them is the one that a lot of people have heard about, which is Won't You Be My Neighbor? And it's the Fred Rogers documentary about um, the lovable Mr. Rogers. And it's just, it's made by a filmmaker named Morgan Neville, who's a document, uh, documentary filmmaker. He made 20 Feet from Stardom. And he knows what he's doing. He's a real doc filmmaker who doesn't just present like a chronological telling of Mr. Rogers' life. It's like a deep sort of look at humanity and his questions of you know how goodness can change the world and how he learned to talk to children and how much this is, matters and how important it is. And by the end, you'll be crying because it's not just about what you're seeing but making you think about how you can be a better person in your life. And how that goodness can change the world if you reflect on that and who has helped you live your life better. It's such a, a, a beautiful, like, uplifting documentary. And uh, Focus Features has it, so a lot of people will be able to see it. And then the last one. Yes? No, I just said nice. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the last one, which uh, we can talk about, um, is a film, a documentary film called Minding the Gap. And it's made by a filmmaker named Bing Lu, and um, he filmed his friends and himself. Um, they grew up in this town. What's it? Rock, Rockton? Rockford. Rockford, Illinois. And it's a small town, and he basically was filming them since they were kids. Uh, and there's they're a bunch of skater kids, and they the, the film is about them getting into adulthood. It's coming of age, but it's not really. It's more about coming of adulthood. And learning to deal with the challenges that happen when you get to that point and the revelations and realizations you have when you grow up. And there's a central theme where the three kids, this, these three male friends, sort of realize that they have a connection between themselves and have to deal with that in life. And um, it's a tough film, but it's also a really... I use this word a lot, but beautiful film. There's some filmmaking parts of it that are like editing parts of it that just got to me emotionally. Everyone I told to see it, because this is one of them I saw early, also loved it, which was a good sign to me that it wasn't just something I connected with, that he made a, a film that a lot of people can connect to and understand and appreciate. Bing was uh, my assistant camera operator, AC, on my short film that I directed in 2012. I had a lot of respect for him and his approach. I had sort of kept tabs on what he was working on. And as it began to develop, and I saw that it was called Minding the Gap, and I saw it was about skateboarding, and I was like, okay, that's interesting. That's cool. And then uh, I started to see more photography from him. I started to think, this is like a whole big project he's working on. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, um, an opportunity came up where I could be part of a small... Um, test screening of, a, of his work in progress cut. Spoiler. What? That's spoiler. What's the spoiler? No, it's just funny that it's like, oh, now you're telling us the deep secrets of your alternate life. No, continue oh. on. I continue. <laughs> you're I so uncomfortable it. now. You're like, oh. I didn't uh, get what he meant by spoiler. No, um, okay. Then fine. Okay, I, uh, no, I got to see um, a, a, a cut late last year that was not really totally finished and I was blown away by the movie. I mean, just blown away. I have, I love documentaries. Um, I try to watch as many as I can. And it was in like a really small, intimate group. There's just eight of us and we watched the movie and we talked about it after with Bing and his editor, as well as the producer who was there. 
we just talked about the movie and talked about all the themes that it was dealing with and some of the approaches editorially that he took. And I knew that there was still going to be work to be done, not because it necessarily needed it, but because you could tell they were still toiling with what to do to make it perfect. A few weeks later, find out they got into Sundance, and all I've heard is amazing things. Like, I cannot wait to see this movie in its full final form, because I know the people behind it, Kartemkwin Films in particular, who's responsible for many of the great documentaries like um, uh, Hoop Dreams, and they're out, they're out here in Chicago, so I have a deep respect for them. A lot of great people behind that film. So having heard you see it, love it, talk to Bing, I've seen him, I mean, they won the Jury Award for Best uh, Breakthrough Documentary Filmmaker, is that what yeah, it's called? Yeah, which is great. I mean, I mean, he's a great guy, and it's great to see good people succeed. But more importantly, the themes of the movie are going to be very, very tied into what's going on in culture right now with women and with relationships and with toxic masculinity. And um, it's, it's going to be, I think, a, a really important documentary. I, I hope it can carry on this, this success train ride. Yeah. Like, like a lot of good films about youth these days, it represents the sort of contemporary youth and and the challenges that they're going through today and it's um to borrow the the term from another critic it's about the lost youth and just sort of the challenges that they have growing up and what it means to go into adulthood and they in a lot of it's like they don't even know what they're doing or where they're going which is a a challenge that many people have but addressed with as you said these other greater themes and and questions and context with um their own lives and what's going on which like i want to get into but i want to save it for you guys to see for yourself and experience for yourself and it's cut a lot more like a movie yeah it is like a documentary which i think makes more entertaining the the skateboarding cinematography is incredible um i saw another skating documentary called uh not documentary skating film at sundance called skate kitchen which is made by a filmmaker named crystal moselle and she made uh the wolf pack another documentary a few years ago oh and this is uh, another film about these skater girls from New York City. And her cinematography is fine. It's a lot of handheld. Bing's is like ten times better. And I hate to make that kind of comparison, well, but it really is. He comes from is. a camera background. So, yeah. And he operated. I mean, it's his yeah. movie. And oh, yeah. when you're on a skateboard already, you're on a dolly. So, you know, you get... And, and he has a stabilizer while also on a, a but this, skateboard. So it's like that float, that floating, and that, that that really adds to it. But also the score, you know, having great music. Yeah. He... he it's going to be, it, I really hope it penetrates um, the sort of general audiences. It, it really is entertaining. So yeah. Like, uh, just a movie to watch. But it's going to be uh, interesting to see because documentaries are a niche. Yeah. And I, you know, for reference, I didn't think I would be this emotional watching skating footage. But you are. There's a sequence in the middle where he, like, cuts uh, one of the characters, um, Kier, he... He gets sort of angry and he explains how skateboarding to him is his happy place basically like his way of finding relief mm-hmm. and getting away from things and then there's this montage this, of cuts this device cures sadness i think or something like that his skateboard has a great has like a message like <laughs> yeah that exactly and so there's this montage of cuts where he's just skating around the city and i was just like emotionally affected by this just shots of him skating and i'm like i get it i feel what he's trying to say through his skating expression it's it's such a there's so many of these kind of cuts and edits in it that that make that kind of difference um and i and i interviewed bing and uh, i'm so lucky i had the chance to meet him at sundance because he's uh he's such a humble 
nice guy that wanted to talk to him about the film and that interview should be on firstshine.net and you can read that um, and get sort of a different perspective from him because I think he really is the real deal I think this is a, a, a major moment for him and while he admitted to me he's going to make more documentaries he's not going to get into features that um, I'm still just really looking forward to seeing what he does and, and where he goes from here while also hoping that people take a chance to see this film it's hard to get people to see documentaries but if anything we said have made you think like hey I need to see this then please the moment it opens which is hopefully by the end of the year see this film go spend your money on it go to the cinema if it's playing in cinemas crossing our fingers and then um, talk about it and reference it documentaries need this kind of support and this help and there's always uh, Sundance plays an equal amount of documentaries as they do feature films and it's so hard to get people interested in them, in them and yet I see so many that I'm just in love with and I want people to experience on their own and learn something from there's a lot of great lessons and ideas and discussions and themes in documentaries that go beyond simply here's a presentation and a story about a person it's much more deeper than that so give us the quick give us the names again of the movies that you <laughs> all 42 no, uh, no just like those top five or six or whatever what they were um so people can yeah the ones, well, the ones I talked about are Assassination Nation, The Tale, Puzzle, uh, Search, and the documentaries Won't You Be My Neighbor and Minding the Gap, and Jason Reitman's film Tully. Of course, I would recommend more. I really enjoyed the sci-fi film I Think We're Alone Now, Skate Kitchen, as I mentioned, and Sorry to Bother You, as I mentioned. Um, and I loved this film called Hearts Beat Loud, which is this... Uh, wonderful film about Nick Offerman bonding with his daughter by making a band and playing songs. Uh, another documentary I love called Three Identical Strangers, which is just mind-blowing in what you see. I would also recommend the, the, the new film from the Zellner brothers called Damsel, which had Robert Pattinson and Mia Wasikowska in it, and it's sort of a, a, a nice play on westerns, and it's a really great modern western uh, called Damsel, which is the title is a reference to Damsel in Distress, and uh, Mia Wasikasa flips that on its head, and, and she's not in distress, let's just say. And uh, it's also great. So there's there's always great films to seek and find from Sundance, and please email, tweet, message me if you want to know more about anything, and if you want to go to Sundance, please go. It's open to the public. You can see films. So, yeah. so, so what's next? Back to mainstream? Coming up for the podcast? Or my yeah, life? Yeah, what are you going to see next? Black Panther? Yeah, I think I think we're going to see Black Panthers on my well, yes, Black Panthers the next big one, mm-hmm. um, and then I go we to the Berlin to Film that. Festival. But the next thing we will talk about on the podcast is Black Panther. I think you do this too. I run a Letterboxd account, um, and I'm trying to keep up to date on 2018 with everything I possibly see. So you can follow me. It's at first showing on Letterboxd as well, or first showing, and uh, I list everything I see, which includes all my festival films. I I bailed on it. I tried. I, I can't get into Letterboxd. It's too much work. I mean, this is what you do. Well, you no, should look, have your stuff on that platform, too. I just, I can't. I, I had that problem for three or four years, and I finally decided to make 2018 my year where I do it. And sometimes I don't list anything on it. I just say I saw it, which is just a matter of me monitoring. I have I spent it. countless nights just literally scrolling through every movie that's ever been listed on that thing and clicking saw it, saw it, saw it, saw it to see if I can get every movie that's ever on Letterboxd and then whether I've seen it or not. They're good about having everything because for a long time they didn't have festival films and that was my problem. So yeah. I couldn't list that I've seen something at a festival but now they have everything which is important. So, yeah. Well, 
Well, thank you guys for listening to the show, and uh, we look forward to continuing the discussion next time. Yeah, it's been great. It's been real. Thank <laughs> you.